You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I have devoted most of my life to working for the poorest people, particularly the poorest women, trying to remove the hurdles they face in their efforts to improve their lives. To the tool known as microcredit, Grameen Bank, which I launched in my home country of Bangladesh in 1976, makes capital available to poor villagers, especially women, Microcredit has since unleashed the entrepreneurial capabilities of over 300 million poor people around the world, helping to break the chains of poverty and exploitation that have enslaved them. Muhammad Yunus is a native of Bangladesh, educated at Dhaka University, and was awarded a Fulbright scholarship to study economics at Vanderbilt University. In 1972, he became head of the economics department at Chittagong University. He's the founder of Grameen Bank and father of microcredit and economic movement that has helped lift millions of families around the world out of poverty. He is also the father of social business. Eunice and Grameen Bank are winners of the 2006 Nobel Peace Prize. His books include Banker to the Poor, Creating a World Without Poverty, and Building a Social Business. His new book is A World of Three Zeros, The New Economics of Zero Poverty, Zero Unemployment, and Zero Carbon Emissions. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Eunice. Thank you for inviting me. For me, this book, the thing that stands out is the power of ideas, a single man with a single pragmatic, practical idea, acting in a small part of the world, treating a small number of people, managed to change the entire world, the economic structure of the entire world. This is a huge accomplishment. This lets us know that something that many people think which is impossible, change. It's not only possible, it's uh, achievable by one man with one idea acting locally. So tell me about that, how that felt to make that kind of change and the power of that idea. Uh, at the moment when I was beginning it, uh, I had no idea that I was uh, really changing anything in a big way. Uh, I see a problem there in the village that I was uh, trying to help people. And I see a lot of loan sharking in the village. People lending tiny little money to poor people. And in that pretext, they grab everything the poor person has. And it's just so horrible when you see face to face, so close to the event. So I felt terrible that I cannot do anything to protect those poor people. One idea that came, maybe I can do some help to few people if I start start lending money to them instead of uh, they going to the loan shark. It's a very simple thing. I lend the money telling them they don't have to have any terrible conditionalities of it. As long as they pay me back, that's good enough for me. I didn't know what will be the result. But people liked that idea, started coming to me. And I started taking money out of my pocket and giving loans, a very small amount of loan. 
two dollars, five dollars, ten dollars, that kind of loan. And I was feeling so happy that uh, they liked it because they don't have to go to Loan Shark and lose everything. And I continued and it became bigger and bigger. And I feel happier and happier because uh, I can reach out to more people and then Loan Shark cannot touch them. And at one point it became so big, I thought uh, I alone with my money cannot go on like this. Sooner or later I'll come to the end of my money. So I was thinking of creating a bank out of it. Started in 1976, we created a bank in 1983, called it Grameen Bank or Village Bank. And that was the beginning. I had no idea that people everywhere will need that kind of uh, support, but it gradually grew within the country. And then we saw the same thing happen in other countries. So the people picked up the idea and started doing it there. And now it became a global phenomenon. No country in the, country, in the world exists without a program like ours called microcredit. Grameen Bank program. Even in the United States, we run Grameen America here. Started in 2008. You have a branch right in San Jose. Uh, there are 20 branches all over the United States. One in San Jose and seven in New York City and other in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, in Houston, Boston, and Omaha, Nebraska, and many other places. And we totally, we have over 100,000 borrowers all of them women. Startup loan will be somewhere around $1,000, and they start their business and pay back. No guarantee, no collateral, no papers needed. And repayment rate is near 100%. We have given out nearly $1 billion in loans, and we are hoping in the next 10 years we can give $10 billion to half a million borrowers as we keep on expanding from 20 branches today to 40 branches in 10 years. We could do more if we had access to finance. If we had more money, we can reach out to more people. And it works even in uh, inner cities here, including in the deep villages and mountains and uh, travel areas everywhere around the world. Uh, you suggest in your new book that one of the things we need to do is to take a look at how we measure growth. Right now, we measure growth as GDP, but that's a really flawed vision of what we cons actually consider growth as human beings. And I think that, so talk about just the import of changing the way we measure what yeah. we consider growth, economic growth. Yeah, because uh, it doesn't make sense to measure growth uh, in GDP terms. Uh, it doesn't take care of uh, the economic conditions of all people. If one person has $100, and the rest of us, nothing, GDP will tell everybody has $1. Whereas 99% uh, or 99 people have don't have anything. Uh, so it can be very peculiar situation when all the wealth is concentrated in one or two or four hands uh, and rest of the people don't have anything. So if they grow, they say economy is growing. Actually, uh, the idea is not the growth of the economy, it's the idea of growth of the people. So we have to find an indicator. What is the growth of the people? Where are they in general? Today, uh, if you take the global scenario, uh, only eight people in the whole world have more wealth than the bottom 50% of the population of the entire world, more, nearly about 4 billion people. So wealth of the 4 billion people equals the wealth of the eight people. And it's getting worse every day. Tomorrow it will be four people owning more wealth than the bottom 50%. And next day, probably one, pers one person alone have more wealth 
than the 50% of the people. So what is the GDP thing here? They were saying our per, per capita income and such and such and so on. You're, you're dividing up the wealth of few people by the number of huge population and say this is our per capita income. It doesn't tell us anything. Uh, it doesn't tell us that all this wealth is concentrated in few hands. Uh, like uh, if you go in a broad way, you'll say 1% uh, of the population of the world or 99% of the wealth of the world. So you put it in a reverse way, 99% of the population of the world own only 1% of the total wealth of the world. So you're distributing it, that 1% to the 99%, then you know what is the picture. Because the, those 1% has nothing to do with all these people. So that way I would say it's not a good, good indicator to understand what is happening in the life and the quality of the people of the uh, country. You know, one of the things that interested me was that your notion that the very premise of capitalism is flawed because uh, you say that it mentions human beings, and this is analogous to your, uh, what you were just saying about GDP, it only mentions human beings as, its only notion is that human beings only want to acquire more stuff. That's right. Human beings have a lot more things on their mind than just getting more stuff, don't they? Yeah, that's a very wrong way of uh, visualizing what a human being is. In a capitalist theory, it says human being is driven by self-interest. Mm -hmm. So they're all interested in themselves, each one of them. <laughs> I said that's a very narrow view of human being. Human being is selfish, yes, but at the same time, they're enormously selfless. And that's what the human being is all about. They're not trying to make everything for themselves. They need something for themselves, but they're also interested in the rest of the world what happens to other people, what happens to the planet, what happens to children, et cetera, et cetera. But that is not taken care of in the economic theory. So I said, why don't you include both sides of human being, uh, selfishness and selflessness, and design the business world based on selfishness, based on selflessness. Today, that selflessness is not allowed to play within the economic world. They said business is business, meaning that you don't consider anything else except for making money. So you have only dollar signs in your eyes. With dollar signs in your eyes, you don't see anything else. So you look like you are such a generous person, but since uh, theory has put all the dollar signs, your eyes are now uh, designed in a way you only <laughs> catch the signals from the dollars, nothing else. I said that's what ruined the whole economy. Once you accept human being as a multidimensional, uh, selfish and selfless, then suddenly the world becomes a very friendly place that you can solve all the problems of the world by designing business, by yourself. You don't have to wait for anybody to come and do it for you. So that's what I'm trying to encourage because I've been doing it all my life, creating those social businesses to solve the problem. Microcredit is one of them. My, I didn't design microcredit to make myself rich. I didn't own any single share of the bank. Uh, so I designed it to be owned by the borrowers themselves. So a huge bank with the nine million borrowers right now in Bangladesh, and it's owned by the borrowers. They sit in the board, make, they make the decision. I only help them to design and uh, run it on their behalf. That's what I did. Uh, and I created many other companies, energy companies, um, telecom companies, and companies for healthcare. And everywhere the idea is I don't want to make money from them. I want to solve the people's problem in healthcare, in communication, and renewable energy, and so on and so forth. And that's what we call social business. And we define it by saying it's a business to solve problem. 
rather than make money. The present businesses are always uh, designed to make money. The more money you make, more successful you are. Profit maximization is the key to the whole success of the economy. That's what we are told in our business classes. I said, no, uh, we can design business to solve problem without having any intention of taking one penny as a profit. As an investor, I can take back the investment money, nothing more than that. The, whatever profit the company makes is plowed back into the company because the whole target of the company, objective of the company, is to solve problem. Now, once we accept it, once we teach it in our classrooms, children know about it, that there are two kinds of business, business to make money, business to solve problems, then they will grow up to know what kind of business I would like to do. Should I be running a business to make money myself for myself or make money for somebody else? Or should I uh, be with a business to solve people's problem? And I get my salary, but that's all I need, and I can have a nice life with, that, with my salary, but I'm dedicating this whole business to solve people's problem. In the process, I can solve all the problems in the world. I think this is such a, a wonderful idea because it just moves on just redefining and opening up our vision. We have this idea, again, from classical capitalism, that it's a zero-sum game, that there are winners and there are losers, and if, and if you're a winner, then somebody else is a loser, and if you're a loser, then that's because somebody else has been a winner. That's not the, the actual way things have to work in the real world, and I think one of the things I really like about your approach, especially with social business, is that it's very pragmatic. It's here is a problem. We do not, and you have uh, so many wonderful examples in your book. Um, we don't have enough clean water in these villages to drink. And so you form a social business whose goal isn't to make money. It's, a, it's business is to pay back the investors, keep the people who are performing the duties in enough uh, money to keep their lives solvent, but also to solve this big problem. And I think that's a very interesting approach. I started with the premise that all human beings are packed with unlimited creative power. Mm -hmm. Somehow, uh, business world, to make money, use that creativity only for selfish purposes, <laughs> not for other purposes, because the other purposes they don't, they don't recognize, because in their world, making money is the only purpose of life. I said, uh, you're wasting, we are wasting all our creative energy. Uh, you are using only a small part of our creative energy in making money. If we could use our creative energy, uh, all of us, then we can solve all the problems in the world because no problem can be more than the totality of, totality of the human beings. If we put all, bring all our creative power on the table, uh, then we can make all impossibles possible in a social business way because now we are focusing on solving problems, not uh, uh, kind of anchored with uh, making money for myself. So suddenly I see the dollar signs in my eyes are removed, as if I'm, I had a glasses with dollar sign, I took off the dollar sign glasses and put on the social business glasses. Suddenly I see lots of opportunities and I, my creative energy keeps started shooting up, that this is what you should do, this is what can be done, and in a sustainable way. It's not in a charity way. The charity way we can do that, but the problem with charity is, it's a good idea, charity is a wonderful thing that happened to the world, but one limitation of charity is charity money goes out, does wonderful work, but it doesn't come back. So you have only one-time use of your money. If you design it as a social business to solve the problem, not make money for yourself, then social business money goes out, 
solves the problem and comes back entirely, every penny of it, and bring a surplus to. Then you put the money back again, the social business, original investment, and the money that you made, uh, plowed back into the business, it grows. So you have multiple use of this, unlimited use of the same money compared to the charity money where only one time use, now this is endless use. So I said this is very powerful. If you introduce the idea of social business, if we teach in the classroom, the students will learn that uh, yes, I can create a business to solve problems. They feel good, they feel emboldened uh, that yes, I can handle uh, all the problems I see. At least I can start solving a small slice of that problem. Important thing is if you can solve even a small slice of that problem, you have opened the door. Now all one has to do is to repeat it because you came with your creative part to address something which you were never addressed before. So then power comes that you repeat, like microcredit. We did it in a, a small village with few people. But the fact that it worked, then it becomes possible for repeated. So we repeated in other villages, one after another, all over Bangladesh, then it spread all over the world, including United States. Your systems are designed to scale up beautifully. And I think one of the reasons that this works so well for you is that you have a much more open uh, vision of humanity in that uh, in the tra traditional uh, uh, classic capitalism, and, and you have a chapter on the failures of capitalism. One of those failures is that uh, coming out of the box, say, when you're just a young adult, you're either seen as somebody who has a job or somebody who doesn't have a job. But as you point out, there's a, a, a rich and powerful alternative for those people, which is they people are not natural job seekers or natural bosses. What they are is natural entrepreneurs. Yeah, they'll emphasize it because I have seen it, uh, experienced it. It's not that suddenly I dreamt about it. <laughs> it's I worked with it. Uh, like all these uh, millions of women who took microcredit, they didn't take this money to send job applications to anybody. <laughs> right. So millions exactly. and millions of them just took tiny, tiny loans, $20, $30, $50 loans, start a business. And I'm saying that if illiterate women in remote villages can start their life as an entrepreneur by taking $30, $40 loan, what's wrong with all the young people with enormous education and bright minds and so on? Why should they end up seeking job for somebody's uh, offices and factories and whatever they have? So I said that that's the wrong direction of a human being. I said the human beings are not born to work for somebody else. Uh, now we are telling all their young people have a good good degree and then get a good job in a good company. That's and their life is made. I said life is human destiny is not end up in working for somebody. Human <laughs> no. destiny is much bigger than that. Human being is designed in a way he can do much more thing than just working in a slot in a company, and you sacrifice all your creative power because company doesn't need all your creative power. Sometimes it's in conflict with the company objective. So you f forget about other creative powers. You just work within the slot that you are des designated for. And the rest of your life, you dedicate, dedicate yourself in the job. And the only thing happens, that slot becomes slightly bigger. But compared to what you are, this slot is a tiny little thing. So you're wasting all your energy. It's, a, it's a, uh, the creative part. I said the best thing for you to uh, be an entrepreneur, designer of things and doing things and enjoy it, doing it. In the process, world become much richer because everybody is working 
to make it uh, solve the problems. And at the same time, all the wealth concentration uh, that I was mentioning, that all the wealth is concentrated fewer and fewer hands, that will also reduce. Because if you all become wealth catchers, so oh, there's no reason why all the wealth should go to few people. Because today, few people own everything. So we simply work for them. So we are basically mercenaries for them to help them to get more and more done. In the process, world is becoming a very peculiar kind of uh, distribution of the wealth, the concentration of wealth in hand, and nothing for the others. So I'd say that it's a mushroom, huge mushroom over the cloud. It's a mushroom cloud uh, where all the wealth is concentrated. And the stem which is hanging from that mushroom, that's where 99% of the people, their wealth is. So it's a mushroom, ever-increasing ever mushroom of wealth, few hands, and rest of the people, 99% plus, they are in that little stem. And that stem is becoming slimmer and slimmer. That mushroom is getting bigger and bigger. And I said, this is a ticking time bomb. It will explode. It cannot go on like this, because people will be angry at the bottom that, what am I doing? Why am I losing everything? That I don't get anything, and everybody else has everything else. I don't have anything. So they will be very, very angry with the system that we are in. And that anger will express in politics, and social behaviors, in everyday life of everybody else, in your neighbors, and yourself. So that's a dangerous world. We, we have to address the issue how to reverse the whole process. Then instead of concentrating in one direction, that concentrated wealth will be distributed among everybody else. That's where social business comes in very handy. And the idea that everybody to become entrepreneur comes in very handy. If everybody is an entrepreneur, there's no reason one can become too big because everybody's earning, everybody's contributing to the community and the economy. And then wealth start being distributed along the, everybody's head. Uh, your book is called The World of Three Zeros, and you've just uh, taken us to the first of those zeros, which is zero poverty, uh, and which is also bringing an end to this uh, income inequality. And as you suggest, I mean, the current system, the current capitalist system as we know it and experience it today is designed and is going to only keep challenging, channeling the wealth to fewer and fewer people, for more and more people. And as you say, this is something that is uh, headed for a huge problem. Talk about um, some of the things that, you know, your experience of working with, of changing the economy from within by, for example, um, when you first came up with this idea for social business, what was the, the situation that you were trying to fix that, was, that led you to discover this idea of social business beyond the, the micro-lending? The first thing I want to draw your attention to uh, the question of income inequality. Okay, yeah. sure. Uh, I think the very word inequality is a wrong word mm -hmm. to describe what we have. It's income deprivation. It's not inequality. Because if you've got everything. <laughs> exactly. And nobody has anything, why do you call it income? There is no distribution. Right. There is concentration. And you, this is the whole process of deprivation. Mm -hmm. Because my wealth is getting passed on to you. To, and with my help. It's not that I'm trying to resist it. I'm not resisting it. I'm working for you so that you can make more money. So I, I would say it's a deprivation, not income inequality. Mm -hmm. you, when you say inequality, you mean some are a little tall, some are that like our height inequality. Some are tall, some are short. That's not it. No. One is way up 
Everything is there. Everything about here, sir, just close to the ground. That's, you don't word the use inequality. You say it's an absurd thing that is happening. Uh, so we, we shouldn't fool ourselves by using the word inequality uh, as if it is a tolerable thing. It's not a tolerable thing. Uh, this is something uh, totally intolerable, totally unaccept unacceptable. That's the wrong design of the society. People don't deserve it because all people are made equal. That we have been saying again and again. If we are equal, how come all the wealth goes into few hands and we don't get anything? You have to explain to that. It's all because of the wrong design of the system that we design. I said poor people are bonsai people. It's like a bonsai tree. I thought that was a really interesting analogy, and that speaks to the power of this book in specific and the power of books in general to bring us ideas that allow us to recast our understanding. So explain your idea of bonsai people, because I think this yeah, is it's important. Bonsai people, I can tell you, because if, if you see a tall tree, in the very tall tree in the forest, and you collect the best seed of the tree and plant it in a flower pot. And that tree will grow. But it will grow only two feet, maybe three feet. That's about the tall you can get. It's a beautiful replica of the tree that you saw, but it doesn't grow more than that. Here you saw huge, several meters tall, and it's a beautiful, magnificent tree. And you ask yourself, what's wrong with this tree that I planted with the seed in the flower pot? Is there wrong, something wrong in the seed? There's nothing wrong in the seed. Simply, we didn't give enough space, enough soil for the seed to grow. Mm -hmm. And that's why you got only a tiny little tree. So I said, poor people is bonsai people. Because there's nothing wrong with the seed. They're as good human beings as anybody else. Simply, society never gave them the base on which to grow. So they became stunted, they became very small. And we called them poor people. So it's not the fault of the poor people that they're poor. It's the fault of the system that we made people into bonsai people, rather than give, let them grow in the full form that they are. So that's how we focus on the system itself. The, you ask the question, how did I get into social business? I see problems, like I saw the problem of loan shark, and I tried to solve that problem by lending money myself. I was not thinking about big things, big issues. And so Simply, I see pragmatic way, I can do that. And it worked, and it grew, and uh, today is a global phenomenon more than 300 million people around the world is connected with microcredit and it should be growing faster than it has done in the past. Uh, next, I saw uh, the disease of the children. Among the families where I'm working with, the poor families, children cannot see at night. And I had no idea why it should happen. So I talked to the doctors and health people. They said, this is, this is a disease. It's called night blindness. The cause of the disease is a vitamin A deficiency. So is it curable? Yes, of course it's curable. All they need is vitamin A tablets, or if they eat plenty of vitamins, uh, plenty of vegetables which has vitamin A, because that's the source of vitamin A. So I took the option of vegetables. So I started promoting growing vegetables and eat vegetables and feed your children vegetables, eat uh, those vegetables. In the beginning it didn't work, so I started selling vegetable seeds explaining that, look, this is a beautiful seed. It costs you little money, one penny a packet. It's a pe made it into penny packets. You give me one penny, I give you a packet, and you sprinkle it, it will grow, and you feed yourself, feed your children. It became very popular because it's so nice. It's a beautiful seed. We got people in the villages never saw such beautiful vegetables and the seeds that lead it to. So it became very popular not only with the Grameen people, also for the non-Grameen villages, because everybody wanted to have a one penny packet of seeds. It's at their doorstep. We bring it to them. 
as Gramin Bank grew, our seed business grew. At one time, we became the largest vegetable seed seller in the whole country. Wow. By that time, night blindness disappeared from the whole country. So this is one effort. I was not calling doctors. I was not setting clinics to solve the problem of uh, vitamin A, simply encouraging them to have it and make it easy for them. I didn't distribute free dis uh, seeds to them. All I did is to pay one penny so that I can cover the cost, and I could cover the cost because it's a big volume. With big volume, I could cover that. And it didn't cost for distribution because our staff, Grameen Bank staff, was going to them anyway. So I'm not paying them extra to carry a little basket of vegetable seed. They enjoyed it too. So with the same money that I pay for the um, uh, Grameen staff, for their regular salary, I also sold the uh, vegetables. And this is the first idea of doing a business not to make money, but to solve a problem. So I see, see that at that time. But I didn't see that it could be a whole series of things. Later on, one after another, and I got some of those nationwide businesses, like about 22 years back, I was uh, w wondering why we cannot have electricity in the villages, because our villages don't have electricity. Mm -hmm. uh, so I said, why don't we bring solar energy in, in the villages? Everybody said, no, in Bangladesh, people will not understand what solar energy is, and if you want to sell it, nobody will buy it. I said, I will try. It's like, and that's no harm in trying. And this is the uh, the power of seeing things differently outside of the way people normally see it. Everybody else looks at that and says they won't take normal solar power. You saw it, and that's the difference. And I saw it, and I, I tried to see if it can work. I was mm -hmm. not sure. I never had any idea about solar energy myself. I'm mm -hmm. not a scientist. I'm not a physicist. Simply I read in the newspapers and so on. I just started... Uh, researching on that, see how small it can get, how much price can be reduced. So I started it to see if in the process probably I'll learn how to handle it. At the moment, because just because I don't know everything doesn't mean that uh, I cannot start. So I started it and learned a lot in the process. In the beginning, it's so difficult to sell those things because people say, no, 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 it's so expensive for us, we cannot do that. Then we came out with another idea. We just simply asked the people, how much money you spend for kerosene? Then they calculate, well, every month I spend what, this much. I said, okay. It's a deal. You pay me that kerosene money every month. I give you solar energy from the first day. So you enjoy your electricity and give me the money that you must pay for kerosene. I calculated it will take about three years for him to pay back the money that I spent on him. So I said, it works. So the people are very happy that they're not paying anything extra. They're paying just the kerosene money. And just for three years. After that, they don't have to pay anybody anything. Even for the kerosene money, they can save now because they already done. And they loved it. So we started selling thousands and thousands of solar home system. Today, there's 1.8 million, nearly 2 million homes with solar energy. We became the largest off-grid system in the world in the process. So this is another idea. I didn't do it for to make money. I just wanted to solve the problem, make the cost as low as possible so that they can afford it and I can get the money back by taking the money from the kerosene they spend. If you spend more money in kerosene, I give you a, bit, a bigger, a bigger uh, solar system so that you have more lights. If you spend little money, I give you a small one because you already consume very little. So this is consistent with you. If you want to expand later on, we can give you a second one so that you can have a bigger one, bigger lights, uh, bigger number of lights and so on and so forth. So people understand that now. It's a very common thing in Bangladesh to have a solar system. 
You know, uh, it. what you said reminded me of something uh, a writer, a science fiction writer named William Gibson said, which is that the future has arrived, but it's not evenly distributed. What you are doing is distributing the future to the parts of the world, the people who are like us are accustomed to living in the future, we'd say they could not possibly even understand or accommodate that future. You took the future and just put it there and it worked. Yes, the future is not something for very privileged people. Uh, solar energy is one. Today you need, uh, everybody's talking about solar energy for Puerto Rico. Right. Because they'll have no electricity. So, so why don't you have the solar energy? Just have the panel and the electricity back to your work. Uh, you have, At least for the time being, you can work for a small uh, elect- uh, plant of electricity for yourself. Uh, so it can go on. Like when telephone came, there was cell phone, mobile phone came in the world. They were all talking about how to start. We started a company called Grameen Phone in Bangladesh to bring solar, uh, sorry, to bring uh, uh, phone, telephones, cell phones in the villages of Bangladesh. And the first thing first thing we wanted to do to give this phone in the hands of the poor women in the village. So what we did, we Grameen Bank gives a, a loan to the poor woman. She buys herself a cell phone and starts selling the service of the cell phone. She becomes sort of a public telephone. <laughs> Everybody can come and call, use her phone and she gets paid for this. For the fee she charges, everybody is happy to give that fee. And she become uh, a telephone lady of the village. So very soon we had nearly about half a million telephone ladies all over Bangladesh selling telephone services. In the process, company became a big company. Still, Grameen Phone is the largest telephone company in the country. You know, uh, we like to think, or some here in America, some people like to think that the Africa is the third world, it's really remote, nothing exciting ever happens there. As you point out, in Uganda, and this uh, gets to your idea of zero unemployment with that were job creators, not job seekers. In Uganda, they have a huge number of startup small businesses. This is the kind of thing that would make mid-America extremely proud. It's happening in a place that people can't even imagine it happening. Uh, it happens like it happened in Uganda. It happens in all the third world countries. Simply, economists look at it, they call it informal sector as if this is no good, this is <laughs> negative. I said, that is the people sector. People are trying to make a living by themselves just because they don't work for you. They say, well, this is informal, we, our regulations, rules cannot be applied there. I said, this is where people creating their own enterprises and taking care of themselves, they are not on your welfare list, that they have to give them a check every month, they're not waiting for that. They just went ahead and started their businesses, their children are doing that. If you go to any third world country, you'll see, uh, Thousands and thousands of people sit selling things on the street. Make a living. You go to the train, the train is full of people selling something to you because they want to make a living. You need something, they will, they will sell anything that you may think about. It's a crazy thing they will sell. Then you, somebody will say, yeah, I need this, give me the money. Uh, if you're driving by, if you're still red light, people come and start selling things to you. So that's the kind of thing. We, just, we never gave them institutional support. No financing institution will give them a loan to a large business. They, they have all the ideas of the business, but they cannot grow. The finance becomes a very important thing for people. That's what I'm emphasizing in the book. I said finance is the economic oxygen of the people. If you don't give that economic oxygen, people cannot breathe, cannot function, they become physically weak. 
I said, you give them their of, of, the economic oxygen, the loans and the credit facilities. Suddenly, you said, they are active. They are growing. They are fantastically enterprising and so on. But finance never looked at them. Finance is based on the simple principle. The more you have, the more you get. So once you have more, you keep on growing faster and faster and get to the top. But if you don't have anything, you, they will c never come anywhere near you. I said, that's the fault. That's why all the income concentration is happening. I said, the financial institutions are basically responsible, or they are the conduit, they are the vehicle through which all the wealth concentration takes place. But we don't pay attention why we are doing wrong. You talk about microcredit, Grameen Bank, all the time. Everybody talks about it. But they don't create one like that. So the only microcredit bank formally established is Grameen Bank, it's still now. There's no microcredit banks. We are running Grameen America here as an NGO because we cannot create a bank because bank needs an enormous amount of money and so on and so forth. You don't allow a small organization to start small to lend money to the poor women. I said, why don't you, if we have now, by now have reached out over 100 million borrowers and we want to expand it to million borrowers, say, we need the financing. All you need to do, give us a limited banking license so that we can start taking deposits from people. If we can start taking deposits, we don't need any money from anybody else. It will be self-sustaining, self-financing organization, reach out to millions and millions of people the way we did in Bangladesh. But it doesn't happen in the United States. We have to change our notion of what it means to be a bank and to, to relax that so that uh, when you're not dealing with large multinational corporations who want to thieve on a scale that's heretofore unimagined by humanity. If you're just sure. dealing with regular people, you don't need those regulations. You don't need all that stuff. Sure. You just need ability yeah. to deposit. Exactly. So uh, you mentioned relax mm -hmm. the uh, rules and regulations. Say relax means you are giving up something. I'm not talking about giving up anything. You redesign. The whole system is designed the wrong way. We're turning so the design upside down. upside down. That's what it's not relaxing. You're redesigning because this you've done wrong things. Why didn't you correct it? The correction is not relaxing. <laughs> it's a redesigning for a good purpose, good objective. It's inversion. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Now, so we've talked about zero poverty and zero unemployment. The third zero that you see as being extremely important is zero net carbon, which is uh, creating an economics of sustainability. Tell me why sustainability is so important. Because otherwise the whole world will become unlivable, and we are gradually approaching that. Mm -hmm. And the people were saying about the, uh, how uh, carbon emission is making it impossible for, uh, for this planet to be lived by human beings and very soon. And this is going on 40, 45 years of campaign. And in the beginning, people that this kind of, these are crazy people, they don't understand. World is fine, it's going absolutely millions of years, nothing happened to it. The next billions of years, nothing will happen to it. They don't understand. They're just kind of passing on worries which don't exist. But from that stand, not to convince everybody that we're in real danger, it took a lot of time, a lot of energy for people around the world. And then we came to Paris to bring all the governments together. This is one area where governments didn't take the initiative. It's the civil society took the initiative, put pressure on the government to become aware of it and bring the governments together to Paris to sign an agreement, yes, we are going to do something, and government made the commitments. Yes, we must do something. We have to stop the carbon emission. We have to plug in every, every part wherever this emission takes place so that this emission doesn't pollute our world. And suddenly, United States withdraws from that. 
very unfortunate, very painful. After all these years, the United States should have been in the leadership role for the whole world. And instead, it became extremely negative, saying that we are withdrawing from the whole thing. Didn't say that we are not active anymore. They said, no, we just withdraw. So that is a big uh, setback for the whole thing. But luckily, the mayors and the governors and many other and the state leaders, they are saying that, yes, uh, we will continue. No matter what the federal government says, we will continue to make sure we contribute to that. Uh, otherwise, we come to a, a point of no return. Even if we try after that, it will not be happening because uh, we have crossed that line. So here, we can, in a social business way, we can bring it back again and make it effective, create social businesses. I mentioned the solar energy company in Bangladesh that we created. That is something contributing in this small way because we are replacing the fossil fuel. Kerosene is a fossil fuel. Uh, we said remove that fossil fuel, we bring renewable energy. So it works in a business way, it's not a charity, it doesn't depend on anybody's money, it's just a sustainable uh, business we run. We can run many such programs, and now we are trying to build up another program to save planet from the plastic. Plastic is becoming terrible in the whole world, because all oh, the waste absolutely. of, yeah, this whole ocean is being filled up with plastics. You go there, nothing, it's a plastic ocean, uh, and it will become bigger and bigger. Annually, we put uh, more than 8 million tons of plastic in the ocean. So how to address that? How to uh, make sure that it doesn't end up in the ocean and clog up the rivers and uh, clog up the canals, and our fish is eating this plastic, and their stomach is filled with plastic granules, uh, and we're eating this fish, and it comes to our food chain. So it's getting more and more dangerous. So what we did, we create now a social business uh, to start this plastic to be recycled in a business way, so that everybody benefits from it. Those who are collecting all the waste plastic, they get paid, and, and we re re recycle it to make it uh, long-lasting plastic plus furnitures, building materials, so that you can make housing for the poor people with plastics, so that it's cheap and it's coming from the waste materials, nothing else, and many such things. Uh, so we are uh, focusing in Vietnam in one Mekong River, and the Mekong River is, having an, is endangered with the plastic. So we said, let's start with one river to see if we clean up the whole river with plastic. And then uh, it makes it usable for people uh, who need these uh, uh, furnitures, utensils, and things like that, which is long-lasting, meaning it's not ending up in the ocean and in not ending at the river. So you're keeping it at home and you enjoy it and so on. And also working with the chemists to see if they can come up with the formula to produce uh, uh, biodegradable plastic, so that it doesn't uh, clog up everything. You mentioned, you said one river, and I think that's important because that's, I think, uh, the way all of your work starts is to focus in on one small part of one problem that can be solved, and having solved that one small problem, the solution itself scales up naturally because you're dealing with human beings seen as economic and social beings, not just as economic beings. That's the message I try to give, mm -hmm. uh, encourage the young people. Think about the boldest thing you want to do for the whole world. Imagine that. Even if it doesn't look realistic, make it happen. Imagine that as a kind of imagination, as a fiction. Then start doing it in a small way. Try it out. Take a small piece and see if you can work it out. If it works, your whole big wild imagination will come rea into reality. I said everything, all the big thing comes with an imagination. Have that imagination in mind. Don't ignore imagination. Imagination is not a bad thing, it's a very good thing. If you imagine something, there's a good chance it will make it happen. 
If you don't imagine, it will never happen because it never had you in your mind. So it never happened. If you don't have it in your mind, it will never happen. So we keep on saying that you, you do that, and it's like if you when the little babies start walking, mm -hmm. when he or she starts the first step, parents get excited because once you can take the first step, you will try for the second step, and soon you'll be walking and running. So that every problem is like that. You have to take, take that baby step first. Once you take that baby step, you know for sure soon the baby will be walking, the baby will be running, the baby will be marathon runner soon. That's an amazing <laughs> analogy, I, I think. And that speaks to the power of both writing and story and analogy to uh, change the way we see things. I, one of the things you talk about is the importance of education. And, and what I think of is that what we need are a world of world builders, people who in their mind can build an entire world that is different from ours, but better. And once you built that model of the world that's different and better, you that's the first step on a path to actually realizing that. That's very important to do that. And for the children, the young people, I said, make those imagination of the world that you want to live in. Exactly. So you, you do that, even if it's not totally, everybody says, oh, this is uh, unrealistic. Make, call it a fiction. This is my uh, fiction that I'm making of the world. I admire science fiction because they go endlessly, without any limitation, what kind of world will be in the, in the science world with the galaxies after galaxies, you move from uh, one system to the another system and transportations and all kinds of people, the speed has no limit, all kinds of things. Today, everything looks absurd. I said the beauty of the science fiction is the science and technology follow that step by step to make it happen. Exactly. And it's, this is, whatever is happening is because some science fiction writers had something put it in the book and in the movies and the series and so on and get excited and we say, why not? And make it happen. Our responsibility now, I feel, why don't we write social fictions? We don't write social fictions. So think about society, think about people, how they live, how they interact in a completely imaginary way, in a fictional way. If you keep on writing in a fictional way, somebody says, hey, this looks good. That's what it should be. And we start following that. So please, please write science, uh, social fictions. Make it happen. I think that's just really wonderful. Um, this is something you talk about, the three powers for transforming the world. And the first is the youth who are out there at this moment, uh, many of them writing those kind of fictions and reimagining the world in a way that is better and more powerful. Talk about just the power of youth and why you think that youth itself is so important in bringing about your world of for three zeros. Things. For two things, I think youth is very powerful uh, in, in, the, in creating this new world. First of all, their mind is not contaminated. Mm. Their mind is free. They can absorb new ideas, new thoughts. As you get older, your mind, get, your mind gets set. Your mind gets fixed. You cannot absorb new ideas, and so you reject because it doesn't tell you with it. So that way, it's very difficult for older people to open them up, open up, and say something happening. So that newness, that openness of the young people is a tremendous treasure, tremendous possibilities. Second, this young generation that we have right now is equipped with enormous power of technology. Exactly. Which yeah. No other generation in the human history has so much technology in the hand uh, ever, ever. So 
if you have this technology, if you have that creativity in you, if you have that imagination, use this mixture of technology and imagination to make it happen. So if you, and I try to remind them, if you feel, first of all, you feel that you have tremendous power. You have to and imagine that you have tremendous power, which never, anybody never had. And then you ask yourself, if you have that power, what use you are going to make of it? Because if you don't make use of your power, it will be just wasted away. It will be a shame that you had it. You could do anything you wanted. You had the Aladdin's lamp in your hand, but you never asked the genie to do anything. You didn't know that you can ask them and you can get things done. You simply left it in your table, never used it. So don't do that. Use that Aladdin's lamp that you have in your hand, in your mind, to work together to make things happen. And suddenly, it will be a different world. I can guarantee, if you start thinking that way, into 10 to 15 years, world will be a completely different world than we have today. You don't have to wait for centuries to do it. It's in your lifetime. You want to enjoy seeing what you have done. And that's what the pleasure is. This is what I did when I was a teenager. Now I see how it impacted the whole world. You talk about, we're talking about the import of technology. That's one of the three superpowers. And I really loved your idea that um, if we can make things like handheld portable video games and all this stuff where we apply our high tech to luxury gadgets, that same uh, application of technology could go, be redirected towards stuff that makes it possible for people in villages to live at without, in comfort and security. Absolutely. Uh, instead of just uh, frills about life, you do the frills, games, and so on, uh, which you enjoy, but at the same time, that creative power can be applied, that technology can be applied exactly. to change the world with uh, healthcare. Exactly. Yes. Everybody can be having access to healthcare without uh, any trouble because it's a, it's a, just at your fingertip. You don't have to make a trip to uh, your nearest city, your nearest country, which has a better healthcare. You don't have to go anywhere. In your home, you got the entire healthcare, and that healthcare is oriented to prevention, not the cure, because cure is unnecessary. Sure. We, you can, if you can get to the disease, whatever is happening, and slightest change in your body, which starts today, in 10 years' time, it will be a terrible disease at the development. We don't wait the 10 years before it's a complicated disease. We catch him right now. It's a simple thing. All you have to do, add a new food in your diet or uh, just walk a mile or something, have a good sleep or something like that, and it will disappear just like that. And it, that disease will never develop. So we have, we can have the technology. The, now you're talking about artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. I said you're talking about artificial intelligence to remove people from the work so that uh, you don't need people to work. I said instead of that, instead of harming people, I could use artificial intelligence to bring uh, healthcare services to everybody. That intelligence will tell you all the things any doctor can do, uh, and then perform all the operations that uh, any doctor can do. And uh, it will be almost close to costless because it's done in a way, uh, it covers the cost because millions and billions of people are involved in it. So the cost factor comes per person is very, very small. So this is also possible provided we guide this thing in from the selfless part of it, our mind and our uh, thinking. If we keep on the selfish part, money-making part, greedy part, then we'll creating things to harm people because we'll create uh, artificial intelligence so that we, I don't have to hire people. If I don't hire people, where do they go? <laughs> uh, Who is taking care of them? 
They're going to be in the unemployment line. They're going to be on my front lawn yeah. <laughs> wanting, yeah. wanting whatever I have and with good reason. You know, uh, this brings us to the third pillar of transforming the world, good governments and human rights. We need, I, I think the most, one of the really important things you say in this book is that government is the solution. It's not the problem. <laughs> Now it becomes a problem. This mm -hmm. is our problem. So in most of the countries, government is a problem. Right. Yeah. Corruption is one. Oh, sure. And it's getting bigger and bigger. Corruption at every stage of governments. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a common factor. They don't talk about it because it, it becomes so, people get so used to it as if that's part of life. You standard operating procedure. Standard operating procedure. So, yeah. so you have to, and corruption is the one which kills the government because it, all the rules, procedures are mockery now. If you can buy up everything, your rules, procedures. So this is a, just a funny thing for the book. Somebody to study, somebody to teach in the classroom what the rules are, what the laws are. These are useless in practical purposes because you can break any rule you want. You can get anything done. Just question how much money you want to pour behind it, and people are ready to do that. So that's the way you destroy the whole idea of governance and good governance. I said we have to get back to the good governance. Well, law is a law. And if you don't like it, we change it, and so on. We proceed. Election is election. It's not a manipulation. Media is a media. It's not a, somebody pouring in money to change your mind and those kind of things. So all these things have to be addressed so that we can gradually go to the good governance. If we have a good governance, then all these young people who want to do things can get things done. Because if they are left to the corruption, corrupt practices, they will be puzzled. They don't know what are we going to do. Where do we begin now? Uh, so we need clean roads uh, in our th working procedures and so on. Uh, whether you want to do the trading, trading is lots of corruption and lots of money laundering back and forth, people and accumulating all the wealth by making system work for them because they have the big money, they can make the uh, rules work for them. No matter what is in the book, they don't care. Uh, their wishes are the rule for the world. And that's how it will continue to have this uh, endangering process of wealth concentration and few people getting a chance. But I think that your vision of humanity as being mostly composed of compassion, or at least more, I think there's more of every human being is compassion and understanding than is greed and self-interest. And just by tipping the balance of your of the vision of humanity, we can all of a sudden begin to see, yeah, we can roll out these solutions for the poor to address all these social problems because what we want to do is create, as you say, the social business. Yeah. Uh, what I was emphasizing that the, uh, the compassion is not something that we have to acquire from somebody. Mm -hmm. I say I'm built with that. Yes. It's, but the system it's part has of sealed us. it off. Exactly. The system has put a lock on it that you <laughs> never discovered that you're selfless part. Your, your only part you are supposed to expose your greedy part. So we are doing that because system locked it up. I'm trying to unlock that. I'm trying to break that lock. I said, you have it, open it up, open the door. If you open the door, suddenly you see they have it all the time. It's not something that you have to bring it from somewhere else. You had it inside of you. Simply your education system, your theories, your practices, they made it sure that you, you never discovered it. You never know that you had it. So now I'm saying, no, no, this, you have it. Please check it out. And once you have uh, unleashed that, that thing will take over yourself. And you, because that's what you are. You, uh, you design your purpose of life. You ask yourself, what is the purpose of my life? 
Is it to make more money, get tons and tons of money, uh, buy up all the cars in the world or something? It doesn't make sense. What do you do with that? How, how many cars can you have? How many homes you can have? How many yachts you can you have? It doesn't make sense. So good thing is you have the creative power, you have the energy, you have the ability. Go ahead and change the world and say, here is, here is my signature on this planet. I was here from such and such date to such and such date, and this is what I did. And people will remember you because you did that. And everybody will say, you know what? He did it. He did it in a funny way, but it worked. And the whole world changed because of that. And that's what you want to be. And you have it in you. Just be aware that you have it in you. And make sure you bring it out. That you has to be unleashed. It's, it's not something suddenly uh, somebody else will do that. You have to do it. You have to do it that I have the power and I'm going to use it. I will use the fullest power that I have. The new book by Mohammed Yunus is A World of Three Zeros, The New Economics of Zero Poverty, Zero Unemployment, and Zero Net Carbon Emissions. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Yunus. Thank you very much for inviting me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.